0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg.
1: And I'm John Fensterwald.
0: Well, even as millions of students at all levels of the education system continue to cope with distance learning from the shelter of their homes, eyes are now turning to when and how schools and colleges might reopen in the fall. This week, Governor Newsom once again took the entire education community by surprise when he suggested that K-12 schools at least should consider opening for in-classroom instruction. Not later than usual, as many expected, but earlier. Uh, The schools are shut down for the remainder of the school year. Learning continues at home, distance learning and the like. But we recognize there's been a learning loss because of this disruption. We're concerned about that learning loss even into the summer. And so we are considering the prospect of an even earlier school
1: year into the fall, as early as late July, early August. Newsom's suggestion has provoked intense discussion across the state We'll talk with an elementary school district superintendent who is grappling with how to open schools. And trust me, you may think you understand the complexities of all this, but you really will want to hear this interview to understand just how complex.
0: In the meantime, hundreds of thousands of high school seniors had to make a decision by today, May 1st, about what college they plan to attend in the fall. The pandemic has created big uncertainties for many of them and their families, and cause at least some of them to change their plans. We'll talk with the president of one of the largest CSU campuses about what she is seeing on her campus.
1: But first, we're pleased to have on the line Katie McNamara. She's superintendent of the South Bay Union District. It's a pre-K through 8th grade district with 7,000 students. It's in Imperial Beach on the U.S.-Mexico border. She's also chairing a task force set up by AXA, that's the Association of California School Administrators, to look at re-envisioning what schools might look like this fall. Welcome, Katie.
2: Thank you so much.
1: So Katie, the governor announced this week that schools may reopen as early as late July and early August. First of all, what was your reaction to that?
2: Well, I think that my reaction was a little bit unique compared to other school district superintendents. South Bay Union School District is a preschool through eighth grade school district that feeds the Sweetwater High School District. And we have always had a calendar that is more similar to a year-round schedule than a traditional calendar. So our proposed start date all along has been July 20th for the academic year of 2021. And that would be true for our feeder districts to Sweetwater and Sweetwater as well. So my reaction was a little less alarmed I think that moving the school year up is a really significant challenge for other school districts. So hearing the governor hint at that was quite challenging for them. It was a signal to us that we might not start late.
1: So you mentioned that you're less alarmed than perhaps other districts. Are they alarmed just because all of a sudden you need to speed up your work two or three weeks? Or are there other issues that it raises in itself? that the governor raised by proposing this.
2: What's extremely challenging for us system-wide is understanding what school is gonna look like when we return, period. Right now, there are so many things to be thinking about related to coming back. And it's really challenging to think about what the options are right now. And the idea of suddenly moving up your start date is definitely an added challenge because it does speed up the work that's already quite complex.
1: What are the issues that you're focusing on? And there are lots of them, I'm sure.
2: So I think that one of the most important things that is always our highest priority is student and staff safety. The challenge associated with what we know we're coming back to is determining how to bring children back and prepare for the changes in regular daily school life. If it seems important, and it might, to check every child on arrival for their temperature as we think about having social distancing and keeping kids six feet apart, I think about trying to keep kindergartners six feet apart and the challenges that might go with that. Thinking about how we limit student groups and how they mix. I know those are even more extreme challenges at the high school level, but understanding how to structure school in ways that will mitigate how often students come into contact with each other. Certainly personal protective equipment for students and staff is on my mind. Are we able to purchase The kinds of things that we need, masks, safety guards for desks and counters are being talked about right now. I just put in an order for hand-washing stations because I don't have sinks in every single classroom. Mask, gloves, safety goggles, disinfectant sprays, wipes, hand sanitizer, All of those kinds of things are on my mind and the potential for my district to get them as I'm probably competing with other superintendent trying to buy the same things. We're also thinking about scheduling related to staff, how staff members arrive and how our custodial staff is able to clean and prepare for students each day, how that might need to be different. And then any other resources that we need for office staff or parents.
1: Are you assuming that you will do this with the same number of staff? Are you assuming that it will take a lot more staff? Do you do different scenarios for that?
2: The budget is another constraint. School districts are chronically underfunded, even though some of our budget headlines don't reflect that. Budgets are really tight, and I am struggling with declining enrollment, which exacerbates some of the budget challenges that we have. But I continue to consider the budget the great limiting issue, and I'm even more concerned right now here in the state of California. We know that we generate revenues based on how healthy the economy is, and then those revenues are what seed schools. So if we know that the economy is suffering, then we know that that will have an impact on schools, which means budgets are going to get even tighter than they were.
0: We're talking with Katie McNamara, who is superintendent of the South Bay Union School District. I did want to just ask you about this issue, because this has come up a lot. You were talking about the social distancing, six feet apart. How is that gonna be possible? First of all, certainly with like the youngest kids, and secondly, won't this mean smaller class sizes, which then in turn would need you'd need more teachers?
2: I think that in order to be building confidence in our families to send their students to school, to build the confidence that they know that when their kids are at school that they are going to be safe, we think that we do need to build that in as an assumption. So as you think about, on the far end, options that would be between fully open school and what we are now and completely distance learning, we're trying to think of what the options are in between. What I'm starting to imagine with some of my superintendent colleagues is a return to school that includes some distance learning components. And right now, what we're thinking about are ways to structure school In which kids would come on some days. Maybe students come on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then alternate Tuesday, Thursday, or perhaps a Monday, Thursday group A, a Tuesday, Friday group B, and then on the fifth day, some students that need to recover even more learning loss are getting extra. Uh, We're thinking about staggered schedules. So I started running schedules with my transportation department because the bus can only have maybe half of the students it used to. What if the bus picks up half of the students, they bring them to school, and then they run another route? And that would mean some classes would start at one hour and some classes would start at a later hour on that same day. We're also looking at how to do meal service in a completely different way. Currently, we are providing meals for nearly a thousand children every Monday, and we give them a whole week's meals. We give them five lunches and five breakfasts every Monday. This
0: is during the pandemic now.
2: Yeah, this is right now every Monday for the last few weeks and, and, and until we come back. So I started imagining that what school would look like is maybe a modified day where it's not as long as it normally is but a shorter day in which children will have already eaten the breakfast we provided the day before. They will attend school for a certain number of hours and then we will hand them their lunch and tomorrow's breakfast and they'll just go home. We really do wanna figure out ways to keep kids spread out as much as possible and as safe as possible.
0: This would still be really challenging for parents, right? I mean, of course, we don't know if the parents would be back at work at that time.
2: Yes. The cost of not returning is parents would face the continued burden of providing or arranging emergency child care or limiting their ability to work and their efforts to also kickstart the economy.
1: Or would you imagine child care then continuing at the school in the afternoon?
2: So that's the other really interesting challenge right now. Some school districts have been asked... To start thinking about what childcare could look like, particularly, and there's a list of how to consider the most essential parents to provide childcare for. So, an example would be someone who works in the medical profession and they have to be out of their home at work. That's definitely a need that we would like to help support. We also really worry about highly vulnerable children, children who might have a history of being in homes with domestic violence, children who are foster youth. There are children who we worry tremendously about in this situation that we are doing our best to make sure we're connected to. The challenge with that is space. So, as we think about spreading ourselves out across campuses, the more we spread out into the spaces that we have, the more we can offer regular school. If we reserve rooms for child care, then that limits our ability to bring more kids back for more minutes.
1: It's not like we're Denmark, where there are 12 or so kids per class and you can easily space them out. What is your class average class size?
2: Yeah, so in primary, we are always an average of 24 to 1. So one idea was that we could split classes in half and half, and we think we can accommodate 12 students um, in the 960 square foot rooms. It gets more challenging in upper grades. The very maximum for our school district is 32, but those upper grade classrooms are even tough to just evenly split. And then the thing that I often wonder about is to what degree will our parents feel that they absolutely can send their kids to school? and do their children have medical issues that they just don't feel comfortable sending kids to school. So we're trying to anticipate, will every single student come back or will there be a percentage that still wanna do distance learning? And we would love to be able to provide that in a really robust way if that's their choice.
0: We're talking with Katie McNamara, superintendent of the South Bay Union School District. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, I appreciate your support.
0: Let's shift gears to the other end of the education spectrum, which is also fraught with uncertainties. Today, May 1, May Day in many parts of the world, is the deadline for most high school seniors to let colleges know which college they plan to attend this fall. But the pandemic is having an impact on many of their decisions, as our own Larry Gordon wrote about this week. We have Larry on the line. Welcome, Larry.
3: Thanks, Lewis. Glad to be here.
0: So tell us, Larry, is the pandemic having an impact on students' decisions?
3: Yeah, definitely. I've spoken to many students who are worried particularly about being far from home. And that may be not only going across the country, it may be just going across California. So more students I've spoken to from Southern California now say they are anxious about going to Northern California and possibly being stuck in Davis, or Berkeley, or Chico, if there is a recurrence of the virus in, in, in the fall. and Their mothers and fathers have some of the same concerns, and then the same thing back and forth from the north to the south. So some students have decided not to go to their dream school, particularly to UCs, and stay a bit more local going to the CSU, or possibly a community college in their own hometown.
0: To what extent did the cost also factor into it? I mean, you mentioned UC; that's a little more expensive than uh, the Cal State.
3: There are some families, or many families, who have lost jobs, lost hours of work, and you know they're worried about the costs. Some students I've spoken to, uh, their families are you know, manual laborers; moms are housekeepers who who lost work, and you know they're deciding, even with Pell grants and even with Cal grants. They're just not able to spring for that extra money they might need for books or even for traveling. You know, it's a concern. And I, I think that, you know, this is going to play out over the summer, too. Even some students who may have put deposits down may decide to pull out of those deposits and not show up and go elsewhere.
0: What about students who are deciding to go to community college instead of a CSU or a UC
3: Community colleges say they're expecting a lot more in the fall from that. And some students are saying that they may go to community college even for a semester or a year. And some of the four-year universities acknowledge that and say they're going to accept students back in the spring. So some are showing some leniency, saying, okay, you may not feel comfortable in September, but when January comes around, you know, you'll be able to come here. Chico State, for example, said that. And, and, you know, so some students may start a community college and then mid-year wind up back at, at their original intended school. But just a lot of flux.
0: Well, Larry, thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thank you, Lewis.
0: To get a campus perspective, we're pleased to have Diane Harrison. She's president of Cal State Northridge on the line. Welcome, President Harrison.
4: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here.
0: I'm wondering if you could tell us what impact the pandemic is having on students having to make these very difficult and important decisions that really could have an impact on their entire lives.
4: So far, what we're seeing is uh, a couple of things. On our new student enrollment, for students who are filing those intentions to enroll, for our transfer students, they seem to be on a greater pace of telling us, yes, they're going to enroll than the first time freshmen. First time freshmen are down a little bit. Now understand this enrollment management world is one that is part art and part science. The science part is we base predictions and we model our best estimates, typically on what happened last year or what happened in the last three years. And so that's how we gauge where we are Well, the unfortunate thing obviously is last year we didn't have a pandemic. And so it's very different. It's exceedingly difficult to try and estimate what we think is going to happen in August with today, because this is a very challenging time. There are a lot of uncertainties. We know that particularly for first time freshmen coming in, nationally, they're delaying their decisions. They're not necessarily making them right when they get an acceptance letter which was more the case in the past but again until all the dust settles after today because it is the uh, the deadline for us intent to enroll we'll have a far better indication of have those freshmen waited just until the last minute many of our students do wait until the deadline to do so so Next week, I'll be able to give you a better idea of what I will term the bulk of our students, which are California resident, local LA basin students. Uh, We do expect, and based on the numbers of applications and all of the visa issues, that our international student population is going to be down significantly, we believe. We have very few out-of-state students, domestic U.S. students from other states that come, but we did start increasing the enrollment of those students last year. We think those students are also going to be at a lower level than last. But on the good news front, we also did a survey of our current students and said, are you going to come back in the fall? You know, given what's gone on this semester, are you going to come back in the fall? And over 90% of our students said yes, they intend to return for the fall. That number was higher than our normal retention rate. And it cut across all categories of students, all demographics, it didn't matter race, ethnicity, gender. It it was really across the board, so that was good news.
0: How do you explain that?
4: I think there, there are several factors that may be at play here. One is that our faculty are really leaning in and our staff to keep students engaged. They really deeply care about the students and so they're letting them know that. They're trying to be flexible. The university has tried to be as flexible as we can with students, so that's helping. We keep sending messages out about if you need X or Y? Let us know. We've done computer, laptop loaners, and you know we we've just done whatever we could to try and support these students in this very challenging time. The other piece, yeah. though, I think is that what's the alternative? You drop out, and then what? There's all these good jobs out there for you. Mm, I don't think so. So my message has also been, and one that we're we're starting to really push out to either newly admitted students or students who are currently enrolled. Now is the time to stay in school. Now is the time to enroll and get your degree, be ready for this post COVID economy and environment. So that's our message.
0: Just to get back then to the freshmen who would be coming in the fall and you have about 3000 students who are in dorms on the campus. Uh, 12,000 who live nearby, but about half are actually commuting from their homes and so on. And so each one of these groups of students are having to make decisions. What would you say would be the the greatest uncertainty that would, would give people pause, a student pause, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't accept the offer?
4: Students and families will have lots of questions about safety about the precautions. Or do I really want to send my kid to a campus with lots more people around than we're used to? Economics is another part of the consideration because so many people have lost their jobs.
0: One of the other concerns that I've heard students express, if they're going to enroll in college and it's going to be online in the fall. They're already putting out the money and, and so on. Do you think that's a factor?
4: I think some people might express that. But in point of fact all of the entering freshmen will have come from high schools where everything was online for the past several months as well so they know how to do it or they know some form of how to do it i should say i wouldn't throw all of the online and virtual teaching modalities out the window because some of them are really incredibly high quality The students are uh, finding them engaging and they're they're really enjoying and, and getting something out of it. That said, is the level of sophistication in this teaching modality the same with every single faculty member? No, because until the middle of March, we had faculty who had never done this before.
0: We've been talking with President Diane Harrison, president of Cal State Northridge, making tough decisions like every college president in California and probably every college president in the United States and many around the world. Thank you so much for your work and good luck on whatever decisions you make.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Well, John, any last thoughts? I mean, this has been quite a week, but it seems like every week has been quite a week.
1: You know, I've been thinking this week about some first-generation college freshmen that I'm familiar with in San Jose and the Bay Area. And, you know, it's been really difficult. One of the dilemmas is for first-generation students to leave home because they feel the tie. and. And now it's it's even more difficult because I know for a nonprofit that's been working getting students into some very good colleges in the East Coast. Most of them do. Very few of them are headed off this year because first the money's not there as it was before. All colleges are suffering. And then they feel this tie that there's so much uncertainty. Parent has lost a job and, and they feel the need to be around and help out with whatever they can. And I I just have a feeling that's a microcosm of so much of what is going on in the state in these uncertain times. As you said earlier, these are life-changing decisions.
0: Well, tough times, but I know we will get through this. It's just a question of when and how long and at what cost. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald, who is coordinating all of this remotely. Thank you, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Stay well. And take care. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.